Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we are going to discuss some iconic texts in women's history. The 1848 Seneca Falls Convention was the first women's rights convention in American history, and the speeches delivered there have been touchstones for women's rights movements all over the world ever since. The convention is considered the kickoff of the women's suffrage movement in the United States, even though it would be 72 years before the 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, which of course guaranteed women the right to vote, and it would be 117 more years before the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, which protected Black men's and women's right to vote. So this was a slow and painful process, and amidst some of the inspiring language of the Seneca Falls Convention speeches, you can already see some big problems that would keep thwarting the effort toward voting justice for all Americans. But we'll get to that later. First, we're going to introduce my reading partner, Courtney McPhee. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Amy. If you follow Courtney McPhee's lineage, you will find yourself in Scotland, where a fierce and stubborn streak planted early roots for a family tree. Growing up in Colorado, Courtney experienced a typical awakening to social justice in high school, but took until college to call herself a feminist. A voracious reader and podcast listener, Courtney lives in Northern Virginia in the D.C. metro area. She completed her graduate studies at George Mason University and holds a master's degree in education, which she uses as a high school English teacher in Fairfax County, which is one of the largest districts in the country. She works largely with English language learners, mostly asylum seekers who have come from Central America in the last three years. Courtney lives with her husband and three cute kids in a colonial house on a hill. And I asked Courtney what um, interests her in this project of breaking down patriarchy. And she said the chance to briefly own a microphone. <laughs> so um, welcome to the podcast, Courtney. It's thank so you. great to have you here. Yeah. A more honest answer is that I didn't have the opportunity ever to study um, feminist texts. Uh, there was a women's studies minor at um, the college where I did my bachelor's. Um, but I was never able to take any of those classes. They were always full because there were only a oh. handful. Um, so I really don't feel well versed in a lot of the um, major feminist texts. So I was excited to be able to really research what we're going to talk about today, but then also to listen to the podcast and learn more. That's awesome. Well, as you know, because we've talked about it a lot over the years, full disclosure, Courtney and I are sisters. So we, it might be hard to tell our voices apart on the podcast. We've been told we sound alike. As you know, we've talked about this for years, that um, that was one of the biggest uh, motivators for me to even do this project in the first place is because you and I were both English majors, right, Courtney? And we read a ton. We're really interested in women's history. And we've I think both of us felt this frustration with like, why wasn't I ever asked to read these foundational texts? Why have we never studied this? Why isn't this a part of like the um, vocabulary of just everyday Americans? We should, we should have been reading these texts and we were never asked to. So that's why we started the, the project is to get this information. I wanted it in my own life and I also want to share it with as many people as possible. So I think we're both coming to this, to these texts with that kind of passion, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thanks so much for um, 
reading and for being here today. So should we dive in? Yes. Okay. So first, let's talk about the organizers of the convention, the organizers and the speakers at the convention, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So Courtney, can you start by telling us about Lucretia Mott? I can. Born January 3rd, 1793, Lucretia Coffin was raised in a Quaker family in Boston. She was sent to a Quaker school where she became even more adamant in her belief that all are born equal. When she finished school, she stayed on as a teacher, then became a Quaker preacher where she became a staunch abolitionist and women's rights activist. By 1811, Mott was living in Philadelphia where she married her father's business partner, James Mott. Mott was passionate about her work as an abolitionist, something that was supported by her husband. She started the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society in 1833 after working with William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist and women's rights activist who encouraged women to be involved in the movements. He encouraged Mott and all women to write and speak out about these issues, which caused Mott to be ridiculed for her acting in ways that were unbecoming of women. However, she did not let this stop her. Mott soon became frustrated that, as a woman, she was not allowed to participate in many of the abolitionist groups and conventions. It was at this time she met Elizabeth Cady Stanton with their respective husbands at the World Anti-Slavery Convention in London, England. The two women became allies when the male delegates attending the convention voted that women should be denied participation in the proceedings, even if they, like Mott, had been nominated to serve as official delegates of their respective abolitionist societies. After considerable debate, the women were required to sit in a roped-off section hidden from the view of the men in attendance. They were soon joined by by the prominent abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who arrived after the vote had been taken and, in protest of this outcome, refused to seat, electing instead to sit with the women. The humiliation of this event, forced to be seated separately, not even seen by the men, sparked fury in the women. This event became a catalyst for their own movement and convention. In 1848, while at a tea with some close friends, Mott and Stanton came up with the idea of the Seneca Falls Convention. Planned for only 10 days later, the women published an invitation to the convention in several papers, including Frederick Douglass's publication, The North Star. Douglass was eager to attend and show his support for Mott, Stanton, and women's rights. Though Mott considered women's rights the most important question of her life, she remained committed to abolition, protesting the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. After living a life full of activism and advocacy, Mott died on November 11, 1880, of pneumonia and was buried near her home north of Philadelphia. Great. Thanks, Courtney. Um, so I researched a bit about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Um, Elizabeth Cady, the eighth of 11 children, was born in Johnstown, New York, on November 12th. 1815. That, I think it's interesting, that makes her 22 years younger than Lucretia Mott. Mm -hmm. And these two women had a really close friendship. And I I think it's actually really neat that they were two, almost like two different generations. Lucretia Mott could have been her mother, um, but they had this lifelong friendship and shared passion. Anyway, um, Elizabeth's father was a lawyer and a judge, and he introduced his daughter to the law. Even as a young girl, she enjoyed reading her father's law books and debating legal issues with his law clerks that would come into his office. Um, And it was this early exposure to law 
in part, that caused Stanton to realize how disproportionately the law favored men over women, particularly married women. And her realization that married women had virtually no property, no income, no access or opportunities for employment, or even custody rights over their own children helped her uh, to set her course toward changing these inequities in society. So two anecdotes that I just happened to find in the New York Times last month um, were these. So she, so Elizabeth Cady would be in her father's law office and she would see women come into his office seeking counsel. And that's how Stanton learned that marriage erased a woman's identity, rendering her, quote, civilly dead. And that's a phrase that we'll see in this at the Seneca Rights Convention in her speech. And at age 10, when Elizabeth encountered this, basically the laws of coverture, she was so infuriated that she tried to slice the relevant statutes from her father's law books. Another story from the New York Times, uh, this article was that one time one of her father's law clerks, who was in the office, noticed that Elizabeth, young girl Elizabeth was wearing a coral necklace that she had gotten as a Christmas present. And he was teasing her and said, well, you know, when you get married, your husband will own it and he can swap your necklace for cigars and it will go up in smoke. That's the quote. And that made a huge impression on her that her special gift, that her, her Christmas present, her necklace, when she got married, that it would be her husband's property. And um, just these experiences were really formative for her and really infuriating. There's an, another story about her throwing a book across the room in school and bursting into tears as she encountered these inequities in her environment. And it led her to want to overhaul the, the marital property rights. Moving on, though, she was educated at a local high school and was a stellar student um, until about the age of 16. Her mother had lost six children to early deaths and really struggled with depression and was emotionally absent from Elizabeth's life. And another one, the, I believe the seventh child that her parents had lost um, was her 20-year-old brother, Eliezer. And when he died, Elizabeth went to her father, whom she really loved, and she said um, she would try to be all that her brother had been to her father. And her father's response was, oh, oh, my daughter, I wish you were a boy. And who knows what he was thinking when he said that, but it devastated Elizabeth, but just motivated her to work harder. She wanted to attend the college where her her deceased brother had had um, studied, but females were not admitted. So she ended up having to go to a different college, but she was college educated. She met and married Henry Brewster Stanton as a young woman, and they were both very active in the abolitionist movement. They married in 1840, and Elizabeth Cady requested the minister that the phrase promise to obey be removed from the wedding vows. <laughs> And she later wrote, quote, I obstinately refused to obey one with whom I supposed I was entering into an equal relation. End of quote. The couple had seven children. And again, they worked fervently in the cause of abolition. And then, as Courtney mentioned and told the story, the two of them went uh, to London for an anti-slavery convention. That's where she met Lucretia Mott. And that propelled the two women toward um, the women's movement. So now I think let's jump into the texts, Courtney. So we chose to read 
the transcripts of some of the most important speeches giving, given at the convention. So Courtney, can you give us kind of an outline of the three speeches that we'll be discussing today? Sure. So there were two days of the convention, and um, we're looking mostly at the first day. Um, this is when only women were present. They didn't allow men to come until the second day of the convention. So first we have the Declaration of Sentiments. Um, it's a really powerful document, which was modeled after the Constitution stating the rights of women. Um, so it's a, it's a really neat um, kind of adaptation of the Constitution to cover women's rights. Mm -hmm. The next document we're going to cover is the resolutions. These were set a set of actions that women wanted to fight for. The most well-known is Resolution 9, which boldly stated that women should have the right to vote. The resolutions were put to a vote among the women and all but the ninth passed. The women were a bit mm. scandalized by this res resolution for suffrage that Stanton and Mott had kind of snuck in. So after the ninth resolution failed to pass, the organizers of the convention had Frederick Douglass speak, and then it was followed by the keynote speech um, by Stanton. So both appealed to the audience to pass the ninth resolution. Those speeches held sway. And when the resolutions came up to a vote after, all 11 resolutions, including the ninth, passed. Wow. So it really sounds like, okay, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that it, the, the attendees at this convention obviously had an interest in increased women's rights, right? And that's why yeah. they attended. But it seems like women's suffrage for a lot of them was going too far, too far. right? Yeah. They probably thought no men shouldn't have maybe the right to beat their wives or maybe men should, you know, they, they maybe had their kind of personal grievances that they wanted to see changed in society, but actually voting was seemed almost scandalous probably. Right. For some of and them. it was something that the women were not prepared for. Um, uh, this was not like, Hey, we're going to start talking about the right to vote. It was really snuck in there into the resolutions and women were taken off guard by it mm -hmm. okay and so then it was really frederick Douglass that changed the momentum of the convention it sounds like because the ninth yes the ninth with, resolution didn't pass with the keynote speech yeah by stanton so those two things okay. working together are really what helped the ninth resolution pass okay that's amazing okay perfect well that's a great setup so first we'll talk about the declaration. So like Olympe de Gouges, which was a few episodes ago, we talked about her declaration of the rights of man and the citizen and how she responded to that document during or right before the time of the French Revolution. And she used that document as a jumping off place to extend those rights to women. Um, this is in a similar vein. So Stanton takes the American Declaration of Independence and Constitution as a starting point and applies it to women. And so she evokes the language like word for word at the beginning. She says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary and to make a big change, right? And follows it with, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, et cetera, et cetera. So after the introductory paragraph which uses that language as a template, she then takes on the project really of breaking down patriarchy, right? Of going through a lot of the policies and laws and cultural practices within the culture and 
breaking it down and saying, this is unjust, this is unjust, one by one. Um, and it really is as clear and succinct a critique of patriarchy at the time as any text that we're going to read during this series, honestly. I don't know how you felt, Courtney, but I just felt like it was so current in its language and really quite like easy to understand. It wasn't overly flat. Sometimes 19th century language tends to be a little flowery and convoluted, but this was direct and bold. And she just kind of point for point says, here are, the, here are these injustices that we want to make right. Mm -hmm. So she, she begins with a kind of a foundation that sets up all of these points that she's going to make, where she points out that men have always placed themselves in the position to make rules for women. And from that position of power, they've restricted the rights of women. And here's a quote from the declaration. It says, the history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man toward woman, having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. And then she just goes one by one. She says, he has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. So basically, he's denied her the right to vote. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice, evoking Abigail Adams, of course. Having deprived her of this first right of a citizen, the elective franchise, thereby leaving her without representation in the halls of legislation, he has oppressed her on all sides. And then she just goes on and on with very specific things. He has made her, if married, in the eyes of the law, civilly dead. He's taken from her all her rights of property, even the wages she earns, which, of course, really was the law under the laws of coverture. In the covenant of marriage, she's compelled to promise obedience to her husband, becoming, to all intents and purposes, her master, the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and administer chastisement, which means like physical beatings, which were legal in the United States. Oh, I just looked up the year of when beatings were officially like banned in the United States. I feel like it was right around 1920 that it was still legal for a husband to beat his wife. Yeah, I know. Courtney's making the head exploding. <laughs> I feel like I have flames coming out of my face. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's terrible. You probably know this. We, I was talking about it with my daughters, actually. They're like, oh, yeah, we knew that. In fact, the, the rule, the, the um, saying rule of thumb comes from the I don't know if it's actually the law like in the written law or if it was just a cultural kind of guideline but that you couldn't beat your wife with a stick that was bigger than your thumb like in circumference right really? and that was like lest you be abusive right right let's keep it right as long as it's thinner than your thumb you're good right then you're good yeah then that's not abuse right so that's where the rule of thumb comes from which makes me never want to say that again. <laughs> Agreed. Anyway, so so it goes on for a long time. You can look up this document is on the internet, easy to find. And I mean, she all of these points are really, really compelling. She talks about how women can't go to college. Women can't go into certain careers and professions that are more um, prestigious and more um, invigorating and make more money like theology or medicine or law that she's ruled over by the state and by the church and has this subordinate position. So one thing, I, again, I felt really, I guess, really moved by reading this list. And in some cases to me, I thought like, well, thank goodness 
that that isn't the case anymore. So much progress has been made. And then in other cases, I thought, oh, we still have a ways to go. But one thing I wanted to talk about and ask what you think, Courtney, is in terms of tone, I guess, she wraps up this section by saying he has endeavored, meaning he he as in man, right? Like in general, he has endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers, to lessen her self-respect, and to make her willing to lead a dependent and abject life. So I read that and I can think of, you know, sadly, I think I have maybe known personally, I can maybe think of one or two men who purposely, like really were truly abusive and um, endeavored in every way that he could to destroy her confidence in her own powers. Like he really wanted to make her abject and dependent. And of course, you know, you read about men and you even in the news, you'll read an, an article or in novels and stuff. There's characters like this, right, who are really doing it on purpose. My thought is, I would think that a lot of the men I know would hear that language and then they would say, like, yes, men like that are horrible. I would never do that, right? Um, and, like, that's kind of the lowest common denominator, the lowest bar is like, yes, of course you shouldn't try to destroy your wife's confidence. Um, but I have mixed feelings because I think uh, to ascribe that kind of malevolence kind of to all men and say like, man does this to woman on purpose, it kind of attributes, uh, yeah, again, like an intention that, men's do, that men do it intentionally maybe even that all men do it. And I think that makes me feel kind of, it honestly makes me feel defensive of my husband, who is not like that at all. And I think of my little boy and like, he's not, he's the kindest boy, not. And so that's one thing I think. And then the other one is, I know that men where if, if they were listening to this speech, men I know in my life, who are not cruel and would never try to destroy their wives and daughters or sisters or whatever, destroy their self-confidence and take away their rights. They would never try to do that, but they actually are extremely patronizing or they're really, they are patriarchal. They are dismissive. They do uphold structures, not only in society, but like within their own families and relationships that do oppress women, but this kind of blamey, and really aggressive language would make those men feel defensive and think, well, I'm not like that. And then they have their minds closed to thinking of ways that they actually do perpetuate more subtle, but equal, maybe not equally harmful, but in some ways, yes, maybe equally harmful and, and more harmful sometimes because of their invisibility. And because they're not so overt, these men think that they're doing just fine. And they wouldn't be willing to do the introspection that that these women need them to do because the language is so off-putting and makes them feel defensive. Okay, what do you think of that? So I think that that is tone policing, like saying like you need to tone it down so that people will actually listen to you. But I think the the direct and piercing language is important because they're saying like this is this is happening 
to women and it is not okay even those small things like um the law that a man might view as small because hey that's just the way it is and I don't think that that's right to make women calm down their message to their essentially their master and I think it's a lot like the hashtag not all men movement which isn't very helpful Mm -hmm. because most men don't mean to do this right like um Mm -hmm. you're talking about your husband and your son and and I feel the same way about my husband and good men in my life there are very good men in my life and um and both Mott and Stanton their husbands were abolitionists as well and so they don't know if they're doing these small things because they don't take the time to investigate themselves or they think oh I don't do those things and so this message isn't for me but the problem is that the misogyny is systemic it's created by men in power so everyday men even the good men benefit from the power without even realizing it and that's their privilege that's their male privilege Mm -hmm. so which obviously these terms are all things that have come up recently in our history but I do think it's still true even though this was the 1800s so Mm -hmm. many men don't act that way but it's not an excuse to excuse the good men from responsibility because it is their responsibility to notice in their, you know, their race of man that even if they're not a monster, they're still participating in and profiting from a monstrous power structure. So it mm-hmm. is their responsibility. And and yes, some men will be put off and maybe even most men at that time would be put off by that tone. But I think it's, good men's responsibility to to help educate the men who are pushed away it's not women's responsibility they can be the ones to speak out really strongly against it and and men need to do their work Mm -hmm. so how okay so let's say you have a really good man who is who has he is equipped with enough empathy and the ability to take on somebody else's perspective that even if the language coming at him is really um, high energy and frustrated and upset, and he's able to say like, "Woof, wow, that's a lot of frustrated energy. You know what? That's just because these people have been so mistreated that I'm just going to let that go. Like it's human nature to have a self-defensive response when somebody comes at me swinging their fists or blaming me for things that I did not personally create. I was not the architect of this system. But let's say, and so a good, a really great man can say like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take a breath and think this isn't about me, this, or rather that I am not personally being attacked. This is, a woman who has been through a lot and women have been through a lot through recorded history. And I am going to do the work to be introspective. I'm going to interrogate my own um, behaviors and beliefs, and I'm going to see how I can improve, right? There's on a bell curve, you have a a number of men who's able to do that regardless of the tone, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the other end of the bell curve, you have like, even if a woman used every like, I statement and I feel and please write and, and all of the conversational tools to help awaken 
compassion in his heart, you have just a, a true misogynist who who really hates women or really does want to just destroy women. And there's just nothing that anybody can say to reach him. I would think, at least in my experience, the majority of men are somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. on that, you know, continuum of ability to hear other people's voices. And I guess... I guess I just wonder, I'm with you that I I don't, I'm not in favor of tone policing and saying like, you can't say it like that, or you're being shrill and you're being, but I do wonder strategically, do you think that women just shouldn't even worry about strategy in terms of how to recruit men to do some introspection? Is it just, I mean, well, is it all on the men and just say like, sorry, think what you want to think? I'm upset and I if I need to scream I'm going to scream and it's up to you to filter out anything I say and just you have to understand the message and you do the work. I'm not saying women need to do the work. I'm just saying being the most effective at recruiting men to try to see our point of view, what's the most effective? Or should we not even worry about what's the most effective? I think I that's hard. That's a hard one. And I think in this case, um, the audience was only women. Uh, this was on the right. first day, and so men weren't there. Right. And so I feel like they can use this strong language. Uh, but I, I mean, knowing that these speeches would be published, that men would read them, probably mm-hmm. the men the next day, maybe they know that this tone is acceptable because – the people at the convention are already on their side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I, it's hard to know. Like mm-hmm. maybe it takes, not all people are going to use that really sharp tone and mm-hmm. they'll use a more amiable tone and talking and kind of trying to persuade and, and nudge mm-hmm. and influence. And it takes all it takes all of that together yeah. to hit different groups of men. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. It's hard. I think that's true. I think those are such great points. Yeah, I that's right. I had forgotten, and you said it earlier, but that this was an audience of all women. And so there's maybe a feeling of just venting, <laughs> right? And just being yeah. completely with your guard and your filter down to say, like, we are so mad that's a really great point that it was an audience of all women and that they're with like-minded people. And like you said, it takes all, it takes a many pronged approach of attack, right? Yes. And then for each individual person, right? You and I, and all of the people we know to think, I guess, what's true to me, what's my contribution to make. And there may be there will be some personalities that think like, I am going to be the voice of alarm in this world and I am going to shout it from the rooftops. And if you don't like it, that's your problem. And I think it takes those people as like the battering rams to get through the door sometimes, mm-hmm. right. loud, aggressive voices. And then for other people, they think like, whoa, that is not, it's just maybe simply not their personality. And they may feel more like I want to appeal to men's compassion to the angels of their better nature as the phrase goes right to say like invite them to feel empathy invite them to join you in imagining what it would be like and so maybe we all need to just 
have a moment of stillness and think what what is my voice and what do I want to contribute to this ongoing conversation? How might, who are the people, who are the men in my life that I might be able to influence, right? And then what is my role and how do I feel most comfortable doing that during the short time that I live on this earth, right? So maybe it takes all voices and we all need to decide what feels authentic to us. Yeah, yeah. There can't just be one way to do it. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, okay. That's all I have for the declaration. So the next portion of the convention is um, the resolutions. And this is a list of action items. And there are many, many important ones. And it's really worth looking looking up this document online. It's really short, easy to read. Um, And there are a lot of important resolutions, but I'm only going to highlight one. And that is um, this. Here's the quote that the women of this country ought to be enlightened in regard to the laws under which they live, that they may no longer publish their degradation by declaring themselves satisfied with their present position, nor their ignorance by asserting that they have all the rights they want. Okay, so the other, again, these resolutions, whereas the declaration is kind of a list of grievances and critiques of the patriarchal system, the resolutions are what are we going to do about it? And I, I chose this one to highlight. It's actually similar to the last one now, I'm, now that I'm thinking about it. But this, this resolution reminded me of the part in Olympe de Gouges document where she says, women awake. And um, she evokes like the sound of bells going off. Like you need to wake up. You're being oppressed and you don't even know it. And that's what I thought of as I read this this part and she she says that women have basically a duty to enlighten other women to wake them up and then but that similarly i guess to the last point that i brought up is it women's duty to awaken other women and i i guess i asked this and i do want to i want to hear what you think about this courtney because i've had the experience personally where i have the personality where I do at least try to tread carefully and respectfully as I'm talking to other people. I try to tread gently because a lot of the critiques of patriarchy are like intertwined with people's religious beliefs and with their most personal relationships, like with their dads and their, their family members. Right. And so it's tender. You can go poking around at people and it, it can hit raw nerves and really be upsetting. And so I try to be gentle, but I've had experiences where like the most adamant and (laughs) like really upset defenses of patriarchy have come from women in my life where I try to say like, uh, so it seems like you're feeling really frustrated with, you know, this aspect of your marriage. Do you realize that that's based on this like kind of unjust principle and they will cut I've had this experience where the woman will come at me like a dragon like a fire breathing dragon and will tell me that there's nothing wrong with the system and that women and men are equal and that they're they have complementary roles and they they like really really defend patriarchy and it's kind of made me a little bit gun shy to um in in personal relationships to point out a woman's oppression and to say, you realize like you're being mistreated or you realize that this is 
systemic? Like, do you see it because people can get so upset? Anyway, so my question to you is, do we have the obligation, like the moral obligation to try to wake up a woman who doesn't want to be woken up? So I think yes. (laughs) Um, I think any woman who is awake has the duty to awaken others. Um, And I think the same stands for racism and other forms of bigotry. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who is awake to that, that systemic bigotry is, it's their obligation to help waken others. And, um, people who don't want to wake up, whether that's other women or whether it's men, it's their choice. If they're presented with the information, they can choose to be awake or not to listen to the information. Um, like there's no excuse for ignorance. And I hate to call people who um are not awake <laughs> ignorant I but think it's okay I mean I think definitionally right it just means you don't know something yet right so it has a negative connotation but I think that's what you're meaning right like there have been so many things and there will continue to be throughout my life things I'm ignorant mm-hmm. of because I've never been shown them before right right but go on yet. sorry yeah. um so when I was thinking about this quote And this part of it, I just thought, but also that brings up um, churches that proselytize. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't personally agree with. Mm -hmm. But if I think that it's women's duty to wake up other women, then I also have to allow a church or a religion to preach what they think is salvation. Mm -hmm. So maybe I have to be more permissive of allowing people to to preach whatever is their righteous cause if they want to spread the word. So I guess, yes, I think it is women's obligation to wake up other women. And like you said, it's like the same, the same thing as with the men, you have to know your audience. I think it, I think there's some people who you have to be more tender with and it's going to take a longer time and, Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that's exactly right. Okay, so let's proceed to the next portion of the document, and that is the keynote address. So, Courtney, why don't you take it away? Great. So, the keynote address was given by um, Stanton. So, this is really interesting and starts with kind of the moral mission of women. So, let's get right to the text and start with a quote. Mm-hmm. So, there seems now to be a kind of moral stagnation in our midst. Verily, the world awaits the coming of some new element, some purifying power, some spirit of mercy and love. The voice of woman has been silenced in the state, the church, and the home. But man cannot fulfill his destiny alone. He cannot redeem his race unaided. There are deep and tender cords of sympathy and love in the hearts of the downfallen and oppressed that women can touch more skillfully than man. The world has never yet seen a truly great and virtuous nation because in the degradation of women, the very fountains of life are poisoned at their source. It is vain to look for silver and gold from mines of copper and lead. So this is a really um, harsh criticism of men and She's really seeing the praises of women 
And we'll discuss equality in a minute, but this quote shows Stanton touting women as the saviors of America. Yeah. She previously mentions the drunken, lying, licentious men whom women will save, her key phrase saying he cannot redeem his race unaided. Stanton reasons that the moral stagnation is that women's voices have been silenced mm-hmm. and the degradation of women, the fountains of life are poisoned at the source. Mm-hmm. So perhaps activism benefits um, in stereotypes as Stanton credits all morality to women. Um, but I think this is also tied to the women's fight for temperance. So that's something right. they were also involved in, in just really, really digging into the men's bad behavior. Yeah. And temperance, I'm sure most listeners know, but the temperance movement was the anti-alcohol movement, yes. right? That eventually resulted in prohibition later in the right. 20th century. But that was a big, a big cause that women took up in the 19th century. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I find it problematic to degrade men in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have degraded women by denying them rights, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair to degrade them in that way. And I do find this similar to a common trope of fem- feminism today, like sm- like in TV shows, the smart, sharp, but naggy wife with the bumbling oaf of a husband. Right. Yep. And perhaps women felt their message would only be heard by like this rabble rousing of like, you know, riling the women up um, by pumping up the convention attendees to see like the greatness as a reason to pass the ninth resolution of suffrage. Um, But what would have happened if women were just to stick to the argument that they're citizens and that is the sole reason they deserve the vote, not because men have no morals. Yep. So yeah, that leads. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I always remember, um, you know, the little women, movie with Winona Ryder that we grew up watching mm-hmm. and I love the new Little Women movie movie by the way but I still love that Winona Ryder one and remember how she's sitting um how Joe is sitting in that circle with Professor Bayer and the other um men who are discussing women's suffrage and someone says something about like yes we need women to vote because they're angels in society and they're they're better which um, is kind of the same argument that Stanton is making here, right? That they're the saviors and they're actually morally superior to men. And Joe counters that and says, actually, women deserve the right to vote, not because women are angels and men are animals, but because they are citizens of this country, right? So to your point that yes. perhaps a more sophisticated argument would be, no, it's purely based on our status as citizens of the United States, not because we're better or worse, but we're all citizens. And so we should have equal rights, right? Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because it leads into the next point perfectly, which is equality. So to me, I think, yes, we are equal as citizens. Mm -hmm. Um, But Stanton brings up some things about equality that I think are really interesting. So a preamble to this keynote address discusses superiority and whether men have physical, intellectual, or moral superiority. And after arguing that, for the most part, she says that women have not been the, been afforded the ability to assert their competence physically or intellectually. And of moral superiority, Stanton says, in my opinion, he is infinitely women's inferior in every moral quality, not by nature, but made so by a false education. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I had forgotten yeah. that part. That's really interesting. And not by nature. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
though in the resolutions um, earlier in the conference, Mott, um, sorry, yes, Mott stated that men decide the superiority. Right. That in his, and this is a quote, that in as much as man, while claiming for himself intellectual superiority, does accord to woman moral superiority, it is preeminently his duty to encourage her to speak and teach as she has an opportunity in all religious assemblies. Mm-hmm. So Stanton does later assert that women are universally morally superior. Okay. Um, ending this introduction to the keynote, Stanton concludes, quote, but there is a class of objectors who say that they do not claim superiority. They merely assert a difference. But you will find by following them up closely that they soon run this difference into the old groove of superiority. Hmm. So this makes me wonder, what does Stanton consider equality to be? Because she seems really concerned about this idea of superiority, which which was reflective of the time of thinking that men were intellectually superior and women were morally superior. Mm -hmm. So does she think that that has sway on equality Mm -hmm. Um, by asserting potential moral, physical and intellectual neutrality? Stanton seems to have built a perfect argument that men and women are equal. So Mm -hmm. therefore a woman deserves the vote. Okay. However, she moves into the body of her keynote. She asserts that men and women are not equal. They just deserve equal rights. So I just wonder what Stanton considers equality to be. Mm-hmm. Does she think that it is about the superiority evening out because women haven't had their chance to show what good they can do? Um and she could also be playing to the fear that women want to become manlike. Yeah, that's familiar, yeah. isn't it? Right. <laughs> yes. Um, throughout the convention, there are references to not wanting women to wear men's clothes or acting in other ways as a man. And there's this whole joke that she tells about like priests and upper church authority wearing these flowing robes. And mm-hmm. she almost hints that maybe they're wanting to be women. And mm-hmm. so it's it's an interesting a satire piece but so Stanton could be referring to the society's uh, religious tenet of men and women being divinely different mm-hmm. um, and I think that this actually leads to the most compelling argument for suffrage Stanton says we have no objection to discuss the question of equality for we feel that the weight of argument lies wholly with us but we wish the question of equality kept distinct from the question of rights For the proof of the one does not determine the truth of the other. All white men in this country have the same rights, however they may differ in mind, body, or estate. That's powerful. Yes, agreed. I think there she got to the heart philosophically, the bedrock of that argument instead of you can get so easily twisted up. Yes, in the branches of the argument, but then she's hit like there, there it is. She got it right. Okay. Yes, like it doesn't even matter. Like we're not talking about men and we men and women being equal or the same. Like that's not the point. Uh huh. It's that we deserve equal rights. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. That's really smart and really powerful. Yeah. So men and women deserve the right to vote purely by being citizens of the country. And she takes this opportunity to denigrate the Irish by pointing out that even the Irishmen and the drunk in the gutter or the weak and flimsy Irishmen have the right to vote. So 
clearly that is about superiority and thinking that the non-Irish are better than the Irish, but right. um, and that women are clearly above that, so women deserve the right to vote anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's furthering stereotypes and verbal abuse of the Irish population. Um, yeah. And she uses the support of the Declaration of Sentiments to state that the right of, to vote should be afforded to men and to women because they are the governed. Hmm. Same as the Irish man, same as the white man, same as the white woman. They hmm. are the governed. So they deserve the right to vote. And this really, I think, is the golden seed of franchise. Hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating, Courtney. That's really interesting. I was thinking, as you were talking, um, I know you and I were talking this week about John Stuart Mill, who's writing around the same time as the convention. John Stuart Mill, of course, is the philosopher in England. And and there was that quote that we were talking about with that men and women had reciprocal superiorities, right? So that must have been a common... Um, conversation at that time because prior to that it was it was just understood that men were superior to women in all of those ways that you listed and so Mm -hmm. that was pretty radical actually to assert that women had any superiority that they were superior in any way that was a shift certainly from when you look way back on the timeline to like early church fathers who were truly like misogynistic and saying like no women are fallen women are malformed men like the Greeks thought or whatever. And so to claim that women had any superiority was perhaps a step in the right direction in the turn in the use of the word reciprocal, but mm-hmm. that and then that argument of like they're complementary strengths and weaknesses, but they're still based on gender essentialism, right? Men are this in this way superior and they're balanced by women who are this way, which is superior to them. See how it's balanced and I just really appreciate you cutting like that Stanton did and that you highlighted that place where she just kind of cuts through the, again, like the complications that you can get twisted around in and say like, we can argue all day long about what traits are men's and what traits are women's and what's superior or inferior. But first of all, it is in just as it's at the foundation for men to determine what women can and can't do from the outset. And then to say, to just make that bold claim that we are all citizens and all citizens should have the right to vote and other rights, right? Yes. Yes, super, really clear. Okay, so did you have anything else on that, Courtney? Um, no. Okay. So one other topic that I know we wanted to talk about is, as we know, later in the suffrage movement, there's this heartbreaking development, right, between um, Stanton. So if you think of Stanton and Mott and working heart to heart and hand in hand with Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass was there as a champion of women's suffrage Mm -hmm. at this convention. He participates with Stanton in getting that ninth resolution passed and getting Um, suffrage kind of on the agenda of the women's movement going forward Mm -hmm. Um, there's just this heartbreaking development which we're going to talk about in a future episode uh, where there's a falling out between um, the uh, well Frederick on a personal level a falling out between Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton but between the movements for suffrage between 
the um, suffrage movement for African Americans and and for women, for white women. And um, I just want to, we just wanted to mention that today, even though we'll talk more in depth about it, because there are some pieces in this, in these speeches right from the very beginning, where these white women are comparing the oppression and the subjugation of white women, comparing them to the severity of the oppression of the enslaved African people, African American people at the time. And so I, the way I kind of think of this is that at the Seneca Falls Convention, you have Douglas and Stanton and Mott kind of looking at each other like, yeah, we're, we are all oppressed. So I, I kind of thought of this like analogy of they're all drowning, their heads are going under the water and they're saying, let's get out of this together. But what you see later in the, the years after the convention is you see more and more of these white women using these racial stereotypes, which you alluded to with the Irish and with language of like women are slaves and their husbands are their masters. And when it becomes obvious that America doesn't have the um, doesn't have it in them yet to truly push for universal suffrage, and they're going to prioritize either white women or black men first. That's when you see these white women, especially Stanton. I mean, if they're all drowning, you just picture her. She's pushing down the heads of the people around her to push herself up. And she starts saying, like, when she starts seeing the writing on the wall, that former slaves are going to get the vote before her <laughs> her group of people that she's advocating for, even though she'd been an abolitionist, she it starts getting ugly, right? I mean, you and I both read these quotes and it just breaks your heart. There's she just uses the most awful her the, the her, I guess, private um biases and racist beliefs start coming out in all their ugliness and I just want to read one quote because I feel like Douglas, Frederick Douglass, was really hurt by this. I don't know if you've read, Courtney, that um, biography of Fred, Frederick Douglass by David Blight. That I haven't. Out. It's fantastic. I haven't finished it yet. But he talks in great detail about um, the falling out between these individuals and then how that's representative of the movements in America, too. Parting ways where they had been born out of the abolitionist movements together and that there was a schism that we still see, right, in white feminism and the complete blindness that um, many white people have to the oppression of people of color. So anyway, this quote <clears throat> is by Frederick Douglass, and this is years after the Seneca Falls Convention, but I still think that it's really critical to bring up. So he he this is Frederick Douglass answering the claim that that the women's oppression is just as bad as the oppression of people of color at the time. He says, when women, because they are women, are hunted down in the cities of New York and New Orleans, when they are dragged from their houses and are hung from lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains bashed out upon the pavement, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down over their heads, then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. Um, wow. It's pretty powerful. Like there's, there's really nothing else to say about that. And I think as a white woman myself, 
um, often I have the tendency just as I'm puzzling through these issues to compare um, systemic injustice, to compare different manifestations of systemic injustice Mm -hmm. to each other. And I think that's fine in terms of analyzing, oh, that happens there and that happens here. and, And what are the similarities and what are the differences? But I think it's really important to keep in mind that one is not as severe as the other. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and to remember that, to remember the intersections of different people's identities and how any white person is, is a white woman is in a position of privilege because of yeah. our whiteness. And it's a yeah. very different experience. Mm-hmm. Did you have something I just, that you wanted to say about that or? Oh, just that. Yeah. You can say that, uh, that white women should have the right to vote. That's true. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but to compare it to um, the way that enslaved people were being treated. I mean, there's no, there's no comparison. Mm-hmm. No, there's not. There's no comparison. That's right. Well, that just about wraps it up. Um, was there anything else from these documents or just maybe kind of a summary of the things that we read, Courtney, what, what are some of your takeaways? Um. So I, I just find these um these documents really exciting because they really were the first and most public declaration for women's suffrage. Um mm-hmm. and I really found the discussion of equality and morality um really interesting and also a seed that was nurtured um in second wave feminism mm-hmm. as like the mold for women's role in the home being cracked and and I think Stanton and Mott really paved that way with this convention, this first huge women's rights convention. Yeah, I agree. And I think that was my takeaway, one, one of my takeaways too, as I think back to when we read um, Gerda Lerner earlier right. and, and how women have been struggling, women all over the world in every time period, have been struggling alone. And we, we have women writers who wrote brilliantly and scathingly and intelligently about the, um, the injustice that they were experiencing and that they saw in their societies. But because there was no collaboration between women, it never got passed on to future generations, as evidenced mm-hmm. by our conversation earlier, where we're like, nope, we've never read these documents. We haven't had exposure to this. And yet these women's thoughts and feelings are recorded over the centuries. Mm -hmm. And so this moment is so powerful because you finally have, you have women who were reading a declaration of their feelings and their thoughts and like you said, the resolutions of here's what we're going to do about it to an audience of 300 people. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the second day, an audience, including men and women. And finally, there was a movement that was actually going to change things. Um, And I just think though it is flawed in the way that we look at it in the documents flawed, the movement as it progressed was terribly flawed, but this was the first step um, in this process and it got the ball rolling that would pick up momentum and continue to change the world in ways that we are still feeling today and that are still relevant today. So absolutely. Well, thank you, Courtney. This has been really fun. 
it was such it was such a pleasure to to record this with you oh thanks thanks for being here and thanks for joining us today to all of you listeners and our next episode is actually a really great continuation of today's discussion um, as we've been discussing the women's rights activists saying that women needed the right to vote first and then african-americans rights activists claiming that black people needed the right to vote first it's apparent that for some people, women meant white women, and that for some black people meant black men, right? And so the next document that we are going to be reading for next week is Sojourner Truth, um, her powerful voice who reminds us that she is a woman too. And we'll be reading and discussing Sojourner Truth's famous Ain't I a Woman speech. Um, it's a short speech. It's easy to find online. And it's worth reading and worth listening to. You can find it on YouTube. There's a bunch of different actresses reading Sojourner Truth's speech, or there's even a TED Talk with a performance of it. So I highly recommend reading and or listening to Sojourner Truth's speech, Ain't I a Woman, which we will cover in our next episode on Breaking Down Patriarchy. Mm-hmm.